TED Audio Collective. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, worklifers, a quick warning. In this episode, we discuss the murder of George Floyd. It wasn't until Saturday evening that I allowed the tears to flow. Sitting underneath a cotton candy pink sky, I put on Molly Music's Gonna Be Alright and tried to let the music soothe me. Thais Wilkins is a diversity and inclusion senior advisor at BAE Systems, the aerospace and defense company. Following the murder of George Floyd in May 2020, Thais painstakingly wrote and sent this email to the 600 members of BAE's Black Employee Resource Group, which she led at the time. All I felt was a blend of defeat and despair. I have recently thought about the Black men in my life. I have thought about my father, my partner Jason. Then I've thought about how the world does not seem to value these men. How they could no sooner end up with a hashtag in front of their names. Portraits splashed across front pages for no other reason than being born with a little more melanin than others. It dawns on me how often the stories of Black women who experience this same senseless violence are completely forgotten. I share this today for no other reason than to tell you that I see you, I hear you, I stand with you, I mourn with you, I unite in our collective heartbreak. I share this today not because I have answers, but because I too am tossing and turning with questions. I believe that our words have power, our stories have strength. Our silence absolutely will not serve us. I recently read, a wound that is open cannot heal. This metaphoric wound of ours is still wide open and bleeding bright red. I want healing to take place. However, America must first learn how to stop this hemorrhaging. So right now, I feel as though I can only speak up I can only cry out. I can only extend myself to you, hoping and believing that a change is going to come. It's rare to see an email this raw, this vulnerable, at work. It took courage to write, and even more to send. Thais's email was a watershed moment at her company. What happened next illuminates how we can start making real progress in the fight against bias at work. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I'm taking you inside the minds of some fascinating people to rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, part two of our exploration of anti-racism, the science of de-biasing individuals and organizations. Thanks to LinkedIn for sponsoring this episode. One day, a colleague came to watch me teach a class and pointed out that the first seven students I called on were white men. 
I was stunned. I hadn't even noticed. Everyone has some form of bias. Some biases are conscious and intentional. But for many of us, biases hide below the surface. If I was inadvertently favoring white men, I was limiting the participation and the development of women and students of color. Employers try to solve this problem with education. Virtually all the Fortune 500 companies offer some form of anti-bias training. You've probably been to one where you spend a couple hours in a workshop with an outside facilitator and then go back to your desk. Despite its popularity, hundreds of experiments suggest that bias training has generally failed. It doesn't always do good, and it sometimes does harm. In one study, after firms mandated anti-bias training, black women and Asian Americans got fewer promotions over the next five years. The researchers concluded that training is, quote, likely the most expensive and the least effective diversity program around. Why? One major barrier to effective training is defensiveness. People don't want to admit that they have biases. I've been there. It's not my fault that the first seven hands up were white men. Another obstacle is futility. People see bias as so pervasive that it's hopeless to change it. I can't end prejudice alone, so why bother trying? A third challenge is uncertainty. Even when people are motivated to take action, they often don't know where to start or how to change. But BAE has defied that pattern. They've been doing bias training for years. And as Thais explains, it's actually led to meaningful and lasting change. We've seen a 15% increase in those leaders hiring women and people of color. So the hiring data immediately shows that once they've gone through this experience and they are more aware, more culturally competent, they are thinking about how do I build out a more diverse team? How do I become a more inclusive leader? We also see an 11% increase in their inclusive leadership skills. So it's not them saying, hey, I'm a more inclusive leader. It's their direct report, the people who work with them every day saying, this person is more inclusive. So what is BAE doing differently? They're not only making employees aware of their biases, they're also helping them change their behaviors. They develop a personal action plan of how they're going to advance diversity and inclusion, how they're going to be a change agent. And there's really a whole process even after they finish the program to hold them accountable to that plan. Research shows these programs are actually most effective when they focus on behavior. Not just raising awareness and changing attitudes, but emphasizing what you can do. And the gold standard for sustainable behavior change is treating bias as a bad habit to break. Bias is a bigger problem than most habits. It can lead to discrimination and even violence. But like habits, biases can be mindless. In the same way that you might work to break a smaller habit, like biting your nails, you can replace your biased habits with new, healthier ones. In one experiment, when STEM departments at a university were randomly assigned to go through habit training, hiring of women increased from 32 to 47% over the next two years. In everyday life, we think about habits as the pairing of an external cue and a routine. The cue of alcohol at a party could activate a dangerous routine of driving home intoxicated. But you've probably learned to replace it with a safe routine of designating a driver or calling a cab. With bias, it's a little different. 
The cues are often internal and harder to spot, and the routines are more automatic. Remember when Serena Williams smashed her racket at the U.S. Open in 2018? If you thought, angry black woman, that's a bad habit of stereotyping. The routine is that you've explained an individual behavior in terms of a group stereotype. A first step toward breaking that habit is to recognize stereotypes and practice different responses. You might ask yourself whether you'd evaluate the same behavior differently if it was Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal. Would it still be a meltdown and a penalty? Or would it be passion? Getting rid of a bias isn't likely to happen overnight or over the course of a two-hour training. Change requires you to continually monitor what triggers your biases and continually choose a new response. It's an ongoing process. BAE's training focuses on this kind of habit change. One of the people who went through it is Matt Weishi, an HR director. I've been uh, working with BA systems for over 12 years now. Prior to that, I was active duty Navy, you know, did that for 22 years. If I had come to you when you were in the Navy, Matt, and I'd say, hey, we're going to take you through some anti-racist training, what would you have said? Probably would have been defensive. Why do I have to do that? I'm not a racist. I don't have racist ideas. I don't have biases. The training is typically a three-day immersive experience, or at least it was before COVID. It includes homework, group exercises, Q&As, and time for personal reflection. You start Monday night, you're traveling home by Thursday night, and then Friday you better take the day off because you're not going to be able to function because you're overwhelmed and it took a better part of months to process. What was most profound for me was understanding my privilege and living in America as a white person and what that means. And, you know, I grew up poor. I grew up with hardships. And, and it's not really about what you had. It's what you don't have to give up. When I leave the house or I'm getting pulled over by a police officer, I don't have to give up my psychological safety or security. And people use the sense, I have a new lens on life, right? No, this was like taking my eyeballs out and giving me a new set. You know, this was completely transformational. Once you recognize a biased habit, the next step is to make a plan for creating and maintaining a new habit. That helps to overcome a sense of futility and uncertainty. It also prevents you from falling into old routines. I had a bad habit of calling on students who looked like me. To break that habit, I developed a new habit of pausing and paying more attention to including diverse voices. I also started reaching out to quieter students and encouraging them to speak up. And I asked my TAs to hold me accountable and call me out if I kept giving the floor to the usual suspects. Like with any other habit, combating bias involves focused practice and repetition. Along with working to recognize his own biases, Matt has formed a new habit of noticing others' biases as well. I've been in situations where I'm traveling with a Black coworker, and that person is senior to me, and the person that we're meeting with comes to me as if I'm the boss. I don't know if I would have noticed that before. Instead of saying nothing, Matt made a routine to step in to introduce his Black coworker as the senior person in the room. Don't sit on the sidelines. Um, check your biases. Learn what it means to be an ally. What I learned is I'm no longer going to expect a black coworker to teach me something. And I'm going to use my white maleness to teach other white males things. 
Those things can be very simple. If you're in a meeting with your team and you may have an individual who hasn't spoken up that you ask, what do you think? It seems really small, but it ultimately does help to cultivate that culture of inclusion and belonging. Another important ingredient in effective bias training is not about what it teaches, but about who's in the room. Although almost every major company has bias training, shockingly few send their top executives to it. They're too busy. Besides, they're not biased. Definitely not. At BAE, Thais's email about the murder of George Floyd got an immediate response from leaders. And you get something like that that comes across your work email, and you read it, and you read it again, and you realize how it's affecting you not just emotionally, but also just when you know the person that's expressing it, and then you start thinking about other people's experiences. And I've just never seen anything like that ever in the workplace. Everything that happened after that letter is probably the strongest body of work I've seen in my company in my 12 years, period. Now, my company does great work in terms of you know building things and inventing things. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about workforce impact and raising the bar that really inspired people to get involved, not just sit on the sidelines. One of the first people who responded to me is someone on our senior leadership team. She was going through her own process of thinking about what can I do to be a better leader, to make this a better company for employees, particularly Black employees, recognizing that that is not the reality for them right now. When senior leaders are biased, managers lose faith that they can drive real progress. Psychologists find that even if managers are supportive of change, they still end up discriminating in hiring and promotions if they know those above them are prejudiced. So BAE sent their top executives to bias training. We realized it was time to put our most senior leadership team through it to help them ultimately become more aware, more compassionate, more empathetic, and certainly better leaders in the process of that experience. Changing the habits of senior leaders is not something that happens instantaneously. When it comes to bias training, research shows that longer sessions tend to have more impact. They give people the space to discuss and reflect. So BAE's leadership team spent about 24 hours in bias training over three days, just like their employees did. It's really attacking all of the isms, right? So they look at race, they look at gender, they look at sexual orientation. Those are our three pillars of the conversation that they're having uh, throughout. This time, members of BAE's Black Employee Resource Group also joined the training to share their experiences. These were not examples that were just hypothetical. These were people in the company that they lead telling them these horrific things have happened to me here. So for them to have heard firsthand from Black employees in the company really just deepened their understanding of the privilege and really take responsibility for changing that in the company that I lead. The transformation doesn't end with training. It begins there. Breaking the bias habit requires ongoing efforts to understand the experiences of colleagues from marginalized groups. In over 500 experiments, interacting with someone from a different group reduced prejudice in 94% of the cases. Part of the power of intergroup interaction is that it shifts attention away from our own egos and toward concern for those who have been disadvantaged. One of my favorite examples is a recent study of Israeli and Palestinian teenagers at summer camp. Those who were assigned to the same bunk or discussion group 
we're up to 15 times more likely to become friends. Respectful interaction became a new habit, and it helped them understand each other better. At BAE, that understanding began with a virtual town hall. About two weeks after George Floyd died, we had 900 people on that call. You had 900 people voluntarily join a Zoom discussion? Yes, we had 918 people join the event. We wanted to create a space where people could just share stories. So we had people sharing stories around driving while Black and being pulled over by the police. Um, Our ERG program manager shared his experience as a Black gay man in America. And then we also had a white woman married to a Black man with two little brown boys. As you would imagine, it was heart-wrenching and also so real and so important to create that space. You know, once we really opened it up, the stories just kept coming. Think about how you felt when Thais read her letter. When we hear people's personal stories, we're less likely to see them in terms of group stereotypes and more likely to see them as unique individuals. That's really the value of those events is that they bring people together in a way that just makes them feel connected and human, really. Instead of having hypothetical examples, BAE put a face to the victims of discrimination. The town halls are now a regular event. People show up not just to share, but to learn. They don't recoil in defensiveness. They dismantle their biases through empathy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our town hall today, Courage Commitment. The way in which we are designing the town halls now, it's been sort of an evolution of getting more vulnerable, more brave every time we do them. So let's share stories. Let's be honest. Let's be human with each other. meaningful. So thank you all for being here today. Before we go ahead and get started, there have been really great examples of people who want to learn, want to be better allies. So go ahead and ask your question. On the most recent town hall, we did have an employee who spoke up and said, I'm, I'm, of course, an ally. I feel self-conscious sometimes when I walk around with my Resist Racism shirt that people will think I'm just virtue signaling as opposed to truly being an ally. And I just, I just feel self-conscious about that. And it was amazing, the outpouring of just support that he received immediately from Black employees, from people saying, We need you. We need you to be an ally. Please wear the shirt. At BAE, the intergroup interaction hasn't ended at Town Hall. Instead of just running one-off events and workshops, they have a series of initiatives to make anti-bias work an ongoing, lived experience. They have a Courageous Conversations program where alums of the bias training discuss race and racial equity with employees from underrepresented groups. They also have a mentoring program where they pair, say, a white manager with an employee of color not only mentoring that individual, but also receiving mentorship from that individual. So it's really about reciprocal, intercultural mentorship. Having a mentor makes a difference. What you might not know is that being a mentor also changes leaders. Research reveals that as white men work to support and sponsor women and minorities, they start to shed some of their stereotypes, and championing diversity and inclusion then becomes a habit. Having ongoing touch points is important for keeping the issues top of mind and creating momentum. And Thais is determined to maintain the momentum. So it's really about creating these intentional ways for them to stay involved in that work so that behavior can change. The light is as bright as it can be right after the program, and then that light starts to dim. 
And if you don't find these ways to really put that dimmer up at its full, most brightest spot, then it's much harder to keep people um, engaged and it's much harder to have them change their behavior. BAE also plans to make leaders accountable by building diversity and inclusion objectives into their performance reviews. That's the kind of thing that people can't just walk away from or say, okay, you asked me to do this training and now I'm done because it's going to be built into into how you are evaluated as a leader. That's then saying to people, we are really holding you accountable for driving DNI in this organization. We certainly have to sort of hold their feet to the fire so that this does not really let up for them. To fight bias, we need to do more than change individual habits. We need to transform organizational habits too. More on that after the break. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at LinkedIn. When you go to your job, you're learning so much and you have so much to share, but often there was no place to share it. You don't go home and tell your family about this incredible Excel trick. And even at work, like, you can't really tell your colleagues. Occasionally, there's like, one person you can nerd out with. Meet Dan Roth. After working in traditional journalism, Dan was interested in finding a place where he could grow his network and share what he was learning. In 2011, he joined LinkedIn as their first executive editor. The job is really to make sure professionals across the world are getting news and information that make them better about what they do or what they want to do, and then help people develop their own voice around these topics. Dan's been doing that for the past decade as editor-in-chief and VP at LinkedIn. I was excited to nerd out with Dan about the changing world of work. My first question, what are employers looking for now? One of the most interesting trends is the move from focusing on where someone was educated to the skills that that person has. The number one most in-demand skill is always communication. I was talking to a woman that worked for an insurance company, and she said that for their insurance adjusters, so people who are kind of collecting stories about why a car got wrecked and trying to figure out what the payout should be, they really like hiring bartenders. They're very approachable. They know how to pull stories out of people. But a bartender wouldn't think about his or her skills in that way. Usually a bartender is like, I'm a bartender. That's it. I serve drinks. But when you start rethinking your job as being a set of skills that you have, you can suddenly work anywhere. The next generation has said they are more willing to change industries than any previous generation. That speaks to a second trend. People are more interested in working for themselves. The rise of the creator economy is going to be a very big trend over the next couple of years there are going to be new companies that spring up in this next year that are born out of the pandemic. That happens in every single recession or time of turmoil. More than 50% of professionals in the U.S. see themselves venturing out on their own for their next role. I have to say that really surprises me because I thought with the newfound flexibility of working from anywhere that you have that sense of freedom, and you're saying the exact opposite, right? Which is people got a taste of flexibility, and now they want a lot more control. I think there's two things going on. One is they've got that taste of flexibility, and they're like, I'm out of here. I can do this on my own. Two is that 
I think we realize that there are these incredible tools that are available to you to be able to build these businesses on your own. If you're not planning to strike out on your own, what should you be looking for? Every year, LinkedIn releases a list of top employers for your career, and their data reveal a third trend. One of the keys is making sure that the companies are investing in your skills. They offer opportunities to advance, a supportive culture, exposure to a diverse network, and a commitment to your learning. These companies on the list are continuously training their employees. So I just hope that people will they'll embrace how the working world has changed and use it to their advantage. If there's one takeaway, it would be that you are in control of your own career. Every day, millions of people turn to LinkedIn to learn and discuss the things that matter in their work lives. The LinkedIn news team is at the heart of that conversation, helping people stay informed and connected to trusted news and views that help us move forward. Follow the conversation at linkedin.com news. It's not just individuals who have bad bias habits. Organizations have them too. Collective patterns of discrimination that continue without questioning. They're often passed on as norms or traditions. But if we can change organizational systems, from how we hire to who we promote, then we can change organizational habits. And this is a gateway to building more diverse and inclusive workplaces. When I get the question from organizations that are starting their diversity initiative and they want to put together a diversity council, one of my rules of thumb is that you need to have someone who has positional authority and access to resources. Quinetta Robertson is an expert on diversity and inclusion. I am the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor of Management and Psychology at Michigan State University. I, I feel like I should say go blue. No, oh, no, because you can, and then I'll say go green. <laughs> Quinetta shared some of her research in our previous episode on anti-racism, and she's found that it's critical to make diversity and inclusion part of how you structure your company. Just as you wouldn't expect marketing to magically improve without a marketing department, you shouldn't expect progress on diversity and inclusion without a dedicated team. Because if you don't have someone who has the ear of leadership, you know, doesn't have that seat at the table in order to drive change, what happens is that it becomes just a form of sponsorship. Someone still has to get approval from someone else in order to do something. But you can't put all of this on one person. It's really having the collective responsibility for it. Sure enough, research shows that one of the strongest predictors of moving toward a more inclusive organization is creating formal roles to manage diversity. When companies appoint a chief diversity officer and other diversity managers, the representation of nearly every marginalized group in management increases over the next five years. Changing an organization's structure changes its composition, which can lead to a change in culture. This is a first step for fighting systemic bias. Create a management structure for diversity and inclusion, just like you would for any other function. It can't be one person's side gig. It needs to be the core responsibility of a whole team. But there's a catch. Being drafted into those diversity and inclusion roles isn't necessarily good for the broader careers of underrepresented employees. There are minority employees who are being tasked to do the work. 
which of course, if employees are trying to just achieve in their individual contributor roles, and now they're being asked to do this additional work, which is also the thankless work. After the murder of George Floyd, Quinetta was dismayed to see the burden of diversity work being placed disproportionately on Black employees. What happens in a lot of organizations is that employees are recognized for their demographic membership rather than some kind of unique knowledge or skill that they bring to the table. If people look at me and they're like, oh, she's an African-American woman, she's going to help us talk to our African-American customers and talk to our alumni, then of course that person gets marginalized and that's what their value is seen as. It's such a shame. Okay, it's an extra burden now that you have to carry. But you're saying it's also like the organization is is kind of delegating responsibility and saying, well, this isn't our problem. You're Black. You can go fix the diversity issues. Yeah. And the other thing is, so if I am Black being asked to do racial equity work and it achieves some kind of positive outcome, are people like, well, of course, because that's you're Black. You know, if it doesn't achieve the desired outcome, then people are like, aren't, isn't this what you do? Can't you do this? It would mitigate the positive effect, but exacerbate the negative effect. Dumping non-promotable tasks on marginalized groups is a bad organizational habit. But there are ways to mitigate this. To change the habit, you can audit who gets the strategic visible projects and who's stuck with the mundane, thankless tasks. This is a second step for fighting systemic bias. Allocate work equitably. Consider the job of being an airport security screener. A study at TSA revealed that tasks were segregated by gender. Women were systematically assigned tasks that used fewer skills and were more emotionally and physically exhausting. Why? It turns out women were stuck doing most of the pat-downs. Meanwhile, men were free to rotate into different roles and learn a variety of skills. As you discover these kinds of discrepancies, you can build a system for giving meaningful leadership development opportunities to underrepresented employees. But you might also need to rethink who you envision as a leader in the first place. I recently accepted the position as senior associate dean. If you walk outside my office, there is an immediate hallway. That hallway is lined with six pictures of previous deans, all six white men. If I had aspirations of being a dean, what type of motivation would that be for me? I am a Black woman, and I strongly identify with both my race and my gender. Meet Ashley Shelby Rosette, a management professor at Duke's Fuqua School of Business. Ashley started her career in accounting, but she's now one of the world's foremost experts on the intersection of leadership and diversity. She studies how stereotypes and bias influence who becomes a leader and who succeeds as a leader. If you look at the Fortune 500 CEOs as recently as 2018, the number of women was about the same as the number of men named John. Racial minorities aren't represented well either. Today, only 6% of Fortune 500 CEOs are Asian, Latinx, or Black. You got here because white men continued to hire white men. White men continued to promote white men. White men continued to support white men in these corporate structures. These are bad organizational habits, 
and they have real implications. Research suggests that diversity at the bottom may not enhance inclusion or performance unless you have diversity at the top. And why is racial diversity so rare at the top? One of Ashley's first major research papers was on who we expect to lead. Previous studies had documented a male prototype in leadership, meaning when people thought of a leader, they imagined a man. Ashley and her colleagues took this a big step further. We found that when reading about a leader or reading about a non-leader, that our participants perceived the leader to be white more so than they perceived the non-leader to be white. So you say leader, I immediately picture a white person, not just a man. Adam, this occurred regardless of the industry chosen or the comparative, if you will, racial minority. We evaluate leaders against a white standard. Ashley and her colleagues tried to make that effect go away by telling people that most of the leaders in that particular company or industry were not white. But it didn't work. So base rates. We told them 20% of the leaders are white, 80% are black, 80% are Latinx, 80% are Asian. They still perceived the leader to be white more so than non-leaders. Okay, so another question on the white standard is whether this applies also to people who are non-white doing the evaluation. So we had an ample amount of individuals that were Black, Latinx, and Asian. All of them still also had this bias towards this white standard of leadership. So it was not moderated by the race of the participant. So many of the leaders that I've read about, that I've seen, that I've been exposed to are white. But I also think that some of our our leadership archetypes are Black. I think about MLK, Nelson Mandela, Barack Obama. So you mentioned uh, a few, right? But you could probably mention thousands of white male leaders. The schematic representation of our mind of what a leader is, is white. And it's because of what we have been exposed to over and over and over again. Independent efforts to replicate this research are exploring whether a white standard of leadership has changed over time. Some of Ashley's new experiments suggest that people may not be aware of their expectations for leaders to be white and may expect employees at lower levels to be white too. We have to ask what this means for those individuals that don't have the characteristics of that prototype when they attempt to occupy these roles or when they are occupying. If you walk into a meeting and you see a black woman and you are expecting to see a white man, what does that then do to the dynamics? What type of standard do we hold her to? And does she face different consequences if she succeeds or fails? For another experiment, Ashley and her colleagues asked people to rate leaders in identical roles, varying whether they were described as male or female, white or black, and running companies that were thriving or struggling. So the most positively evaluated individual we found in our research were white men who were successful. It has to do with the notion of valence. White, we're good. Man, we're good. Success, we're good. But we found that the counter was also the case, and that is Black women who failed were evaluated the most negatively. Black, not good. Woman, not good. Failure, not good. These kinds of prototypes can prevent people of color from getting into leadership roles. So it sounds like if I'm a white man and I fit the prototype of a leader 
and I succeed, and I get a bonus for that. And if I'm a black woman and I've failed to match both of those prototypes, I'm in big trouble if I don't succeed. That would be an accurate way of describing our findings. The implications are exceptionally far-reaching and exceptionally consequential. What structural and cultural changes do we need in organizations so that women and people of color can finally advance into leadership? So change necessitates a commitment. Resources need to be added to those commitments. It necessitates the devotion to stay the course in the face of criticism. But the hardest part is to stay the course, you know, when those tomatoes are being thrown at you. Habits are defined by consistency. Staying the course, even when there's backlash. Which is a particular responsibility for those of us with racial and gender privileges. Research shows that as a white man, it's easier for me to advocate for diversity and inclusion. I am going to be perceived as an advocate because my skin and because my gender are subordinated in nature. So I'm going to be perceived as having an agenda. You, however, as a white man, you have no skin in the game. So therefore, you're perceived to be more unbiased in your advocacy, which means that those individuals that might be more defensive in nature may be more apt to listen to you than me because you you don't have any skin in the game. When whites engage in diversity initiatives, uh, there is no penalty. That means that it is less risky for you to take on some of these challenges. And one consistency that we've seen in report after report after report after report, individuals leave these organizations because they don't feel supported. They don't see a way through it. So it is fundamentally about support. Not much is going to change. Just because you bring people in, it's that you actually need to support them. But it looks like doing something different than what you have done before. The the networks that you have access to, try to make those connections. If the people around you look like you, you need to change that. If the persons that you go to lunch with look like you, you also need to change that. Um, Support looks like endorsing and sponsoring and mentoring those that are different from you. Support, mentorship, and habit change all have to be part of a larger ongoing initiative. It has to be a multi-year commitment to these individuals, to diversity, to belonging, to inclusiveness. And it's going to cause these individuals that are at the decision-making roles to push past this comfort level and to be consistent. What does a multi-year commitment to doing that look like? It has to be institutionalized. So first you start by um, educating. Uh, Then you start to collect data. You start analyzing that data. Where in the structure of your organization, there, there might be systemic biases that can creep in. Then you say, how can we address these? You prioritize. What type of change is it that I am looking for? Do I want to change behavior? Do I want to change representation, community presence? Once you have that plan, you're not finished. And that plan needs to be a multi-stage plan. And you get buy-in from your constituencies, from all the stakeholders. Then you need to say, these are my metrics of success. And once you have done that, you implement your plan. You see what works, you see what doesn't work, and then you adjust. And then you implement that different plan the next year. Ashley says this type of work is a marathon, not a sprint. For Thais Wilkins, the first mile of that marathon has been intense. It has been a whirlwind and a roller coaster ever since the email that went out on June 1st. But I will say, without question, 
the most transformative year of my entire career. I don't yet know what the future holds for me in terms of my career or, or where I'm headed or where I'm going, but I do know that this year and the work that I did in partnership with so many other amazing people really just, it transformed my life and it really reaffirmed why I do this work, why it's important to me. I think the email that I sent became the tipping point, the sort of rallying cry to the organization of something here has to change. The motivation for change may start from the bottom or the middle, but it's up to those at the top to provide the authority and the accountability. Fighting bias and promoting inclusion has to be central to the work of the organization. It can't be a passing fad. It has to be a way of life for all of us. For Thais, what's making the change feel real is the response from senior executives. They'll say, hey, I just heard you speak on the town hall. I just wanted to reach out. I'm here for you. And it's those really personal interactions that to me say something here is different, right? Because there is no obligation to reach out to an employee when you're a leader and say any of that. All of those small exchanges, they're they're micro, but they represent something that's much more macro to me, which is the change that's happening However, I'm cautiously optimistic that I do want to see this be sustained. It has to outlast some of the people who are even starting the work. Next time on Worklife. For years I knew workers needed paid time off. But to have a group behind you, it makes a huge difference. Employee activism is on the rise. But how can people use their voices effectively? And how can leaders manage all those voices? Worklife is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Constanza Gallardo, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Ban Ban Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Joanne DeLuna. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Ad stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to our sponsors LinkedIn, Logitech, Morgan Stanley, SAP, and Verizon. For their research on bias training, gratitude to the following researchers and their colleagues Kate Bezrakova, Frank Dobbin, Alexandra Kalev, Michelle Deguid, Melissa Thomas Hunt, Edward Chang and our team, and Trish Devine on Bias as a Habit. Also, Andrea Vial on Gatekeepers, Thomas Pettigrew, Linda Tropp, and Shannon White on Intergroup Contact, Orlando Richard on Racial Diversity Congruence, David Heckman, Stephanie Johnson, Danielle Gardner, and Anne-Marie Ryan on Promoting Diversity, and Ashley Rosette and her collaborators Robert Livingston, Ella Washington, Jeff Leonardelli, and the late, great Kathy Phillips. I convinced my study group in my accounting program that instead of writing a paper on the latest financial accounting standard, we should do our paper on the representation of African-Americans in CPA firms. The representation of African-Americans was less than 2%. And do you know what the representation of African-Americans in CPA firms is almost 30 years later? 2%? Less than 2%. That's right. 
what century is this? Really? I can only report the numbers. I'm still a CPA, by the way. This academic thing doesn't work out. You know, I can always go back to being a CPA. 